Hey, you guys, it's me. Before we jump in, I just want to apologize. I recorded the following episode from a hotel room in Europe, and I was trying a new remote technology, and it sucks. (laughs) The sound quality of this episode is just not up to par. I've decided to go ahead and air it so that you have a new episode. I'm so sorry that the sound is not amazing, and I figured it out, and it won't happen again. If rough sound drives you crazy, Skip this one if you're in it for the content. Here we go. Hey, you're on air with Ella, and today I'm answering your questions. Everything from a plant-based keto to coconut oil, is it true that it's bad for you, to whether I track my macros, count my calories, or anything else. Here we go. Welcome, you're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and truths from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or fitness and fat loss to just living better and with more energy, or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts, and we're learning more every day. Live better, start now. Hey you guys, I'm coming to you from the beautiful city of Paris, France. I tell you that because I want you to know that I'm in this incredible city and I'm thinking about you. That's right, you asked a bunch of questions and I'm going to answer them. I'm sitting in a hotel room, I'm recording on my telephone, and I'm sitting next to this gorgeous balcony and there's no doubt that you may hear a little bit of reduced sound quality or even some background noise. So forgive me for that, but let's jump on in. Carrie asked me, do I recommend or do I use collagen powder? Yes, Carrie, I do. So for the uninitiated, collagen and gelatin are sometimes referred to interchangeably. They are different, but they have so many different benefits. They are also animal-sourced products, and as a mostly veggie head, uh, these are part of the exceptions that I make because, as you know, I'm not a hard and fast flag-waving anything, including a vegetarian. And so I do consume collagen and gelatin primarily because I don't consume animal products, at least in the form of, you know, meats and that sort of thing. I do eat uh, eggs and fish sometimes and cheese sometimes, but I uh, look to collagen and gelatin for their health benefits. And again, particularly because I don't get them from eating many animal products at all. So I did an entire episode on this, or at least I did an entire feature on this in The Good, The Bad, and The Yummy in episode 99. So I'm going to link back to that, Carrie. But one thing I want you to know, and anyone else who might be listening, is that the number one caveat that I would offer you when shopping for collagen or gelatin powders is that sourcing really does matter. Cheat generally no bueno. So you're going to spend a little bit more money on a good quality, well-sourced collagen or gelatin powder. And I like two brands. The two that I like are Great Lakes and Vital Proteins. And again, I explained this in episode 099, and I even linked to those products so you can check it out for yourself. So Carrie, go check out those links in the show notes today. All right, Nicolette asked me a question that I thought was really good, and she made me think a little bit. She said, do you track your macros? Do you track your calories? Do you track anything? And the answer, Nicolette, is no, no, yes, yes. And what I mean by that is, no, I don't track my macros. 
I have tracked my macros, I think maybe for like an hour and a half. When you track your macros, you're essentially counting your protein, carbohydrate, and fat intake. That's what that means. And there are about a billion and one apps that you can use to do this. You can, of course, do it just manually by reading labels and that sort of thing. In general, Nicolette, I don't track my macros because I don't want to live that way. And also, and we'll talk about this in a moment when we talk about plant-based keto and the ketogenic diet, I just don't want to live that way in general. I don't want my food to become a math problem. So generally speaking, I am not tracking my macros while I am conscious of them. I pay attention. I read labels. I am not working toward any specific number or even any specific ratio in a day. It's just not how I roll. It's not how I want to enjoy my food. And it's just not something that I have a natural affinity for. I do know, of course, so many people do, in fact, live that way. They use their apps. They count their protein. They count their fat intake. They count their carb intake. Not me. So again, I'll come back to this in a moment when we talk about keto. Let's talk about calories. Do I track my calories? No, 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 and no. One of the reasons why is because it's a complete and total waste of time, in my humble opinion. Now, if you would like to be sold on that idea, please go back and listen to episode 016. Because in episode 16, Jonathan Baylor, who wrote The Calorie Myth, absolutely blows apart any reason that we would have for actually tracking our calories on a day-to-day basis. And to be clear, he's not saying they're unicorns. He's not saying they don't exist and they don't matter and they're totally immaterial. What he's saying is, is that a focus on calories is a focus on entirely missing the point. Our bodies are not calculators and when we treat them as such, we miss the point. So I have been very, very healthy, very, very lean on well over 2000 calories a day. And I have been fundamentally out of shape, unhappy, grumpy, and over fat on 1500 calories a day. And I know that just as sort of finger in the air type calculations, because again, I've never specifically tracked my caloric intake. And a huge part of the reason why is because even if one was to try to do that, you would need to weigh your food or at least have memorized calories per gram of the food that you're consuming if you ever make yourself a meal. Like I just picture me in the kitchen with a little food scale trying to figure out how many calories I'm consuming in a day and it makes my head explode. But also it's not the point. Calories are not where you want to put your health energy, your fat loss energy, whether you have weight to lose or not. The secret is hormones. The secret is insulin. The secret, if you want to focus on one particular ingredient, it's going to be to focus on sugar more than anything else. You know what? Reduce your sugar intake. You're going to reduce your body fat. I'm oversimplifying for the purpose of my argument. So no, I don't track my macros and I don't track my calories. If I were going to track one or the other, I would definitely choose macros over calories. Again, check out episode 016 for why counting calories is like chasing unicorns. But while counting macros works for some, it just doesn't work for me from a lifestyle standpoint or an interest standpoint. So let's talk about whether I track anything at all. If I track anything at all, even if informally, it's my activity. I track my activity in the sense that I plan it, I calendar it, and I sort of check off even just mentally whether I did it in a day or not. I mean, certainly a day 
day does not go by where I don't plan to do some type of activity and I either mark that off as accomplished or not. I personally prefer to focus on things that I can do proactively for my health rather than things that I can't have. And counting calories or counting macros implies a limit on both and that just triggers me to have bad behavior. So again, I'm just speaking from my own point of view. I'm not counseling. Everybody has their own experience. But generally speaking, I prefer to focus on things I want to do and do in quantity rather than on the things that I can't have or don't want to do. So if there's anything at all that falls into the tracking bucket in my world, it is activity or exercise or training. Now, I don't even use an app for that. Lots of people do. They have MyFitnessPal and apps like that, and they track their expenditure in terms of movement. I don't even count my steps or wear a Fitbit or anything of that nature because at the end of the day, it just doesn't light me up. So what I do is I make a date with myself. I set a meeting. Make a date sounds all romantic. I set a calendared time for my exercise and then I check off the box. I either did it or I didn't. I find that the strategy of calendaring works for me far better than any other kind of tracking. If it's not on my calendar, it doesn't happen. So the day before, I will either set a time to go to the gym before the rest of my day starts or I will calendar a run or a bike or something along those lines for the afternoon or whenever I might find the time. And I don't always find the time, but certainly by proactively trying to schedule activity, it happens more often than not. All right. The only other thing that I really track, and this tends to be when I'm not feeling at my best, is I track how food makes me feel. So I might not be tracking how much I had or what macro count it fulfilled, but I will sometimes if I'm in a slump or if my digestion's not optimal or something along those lines, I will actually jot down what I had that day and then kind of how it made me feel. It's very interesting to look back over three days and realize that I've eaten my body weight nuts and then come to the conclusion that perhaps maybe that has something to do with my gut not acting optimally. Okay. So I will on occasion, again, it tends to be when I'm in more of a slump health-wise, I will occasionally track what I ate and how it made me feel or how I felt after consuming it. And that way I can see patterns. I can actually identify things that are making me bloat or things that are making me feel pretty good with no discernible side effects and stuff like that that I probably wouldn't notice if I weren't jotting that down. Again, no fancy apps for me. I'm just capturing that in my phone, uh, you know, in the notepad or just on, you know, a piece of scratch paper. Okay, Nicolette, that actually bleeds into another question that Megan asked, and I'm really glad she did. She asked, you know, where do you weigh in on the keto diet versus a primal diet? And I'm so glad Megan asked this because she's actually raising an issue here that I've been looking for the opportunity to address ever since I had Leanne Vogel on the show. So let's go back a little bit. When I had Leanne Vogel on the show, we talked about a ketogenic lifestyle. And Leanne made a wonderfully fact-based argument for a ketogenic lifestyle. It has helped her enormously. In fact, a keto diet has helped so many people. Of course, you'll find evangelists for the keto diet everywhere. It doesn't take much to find them because it's cured people of type 2 diabetes. It's cured people of chronic inflammation. It's helped people lose enormous amounts of weight. It's helped postmenopausal women sort of get their mojo back. 
back, you know, all sorts of things. So a keto lifestyle can be very, very beneficial for all sorts of types of people. And again, just as a quick recap, a ketogenic diet is one where you convert your body to burn fat for fuel rather than the more traditional default of burning glucose for fuel. Keto is being a fat burner and the more traditional lifestyle is a glucose burner or a sugar burner. And in order to achieve a ketogenic state, one must reduce one's carbs down to a minimal intake in many cases. Now, your tolerance for carbs can vary and we talked about in the show with Leanne. Some people can achieve a ketogenic lifestyle at 75 or 80 grams of carbs a day. And some people have to reduce down to 20 carbs a day, excuse me, 20 grams of carbs a day in order to stay in that fat burning state. Now, again, for the people this works for, it works. It's amazing. No lie. For others of us, (laughs) living that way doesn't work. There are those of us who frankly just don't lean toward the keto foods, the keto friendly foods as sort of our normal mainstay. I am very firmly in the camp that would love to be in a fat burning state at all times, but I happen to really love foods that aren't ketogenic. I can have 20 carbs without blinking. I feel like everything I eat has carbohydrates in it. And whenever I have tried to go high fat, very low carb, I have actually ended up gaining weight because I do the high fat thing, (laughs) no problem, but it's only a very short amount of time that I can go without or that I choose to go, frankly, without sort of normal carbohydrate intake. So for me, carb reduction becomes deprivation, becomes a trigger, becomes a binge or just general unhappiness. I happen to like foods that have a carbohydrate count. I'm just, you know what, guys? I'm just tired of trying to hack myself into some sort of perfect state. I don't even know what that means anymore, but it's just not sustainable for me. So here's where I fall down on this issue. At the end of the day, you have to know what works for you and do that. And I just want to tell you that what's going to work for you is going to change depending on where you are in your life, in your life cycle, what your circumstances are, what your stress levels are, what your sleep levels are, what your happiness levels are, how old you are, how much you weigh, what your body fat composition is right now, etc., etc., etc. Living a ketogenic lifestyle is not where I am right now. Maybe it will be eventually. It's it's quite difficult as a plant-based eater, but it's certainly not impossible. And I've heard from many of you who have said that you enjoy a ketogenic lifestyle and you are in fact a non-meat eater, plant-based eater primarily. And then I've heard for way many more of you who say you're sort of where I am, which is you prefer a plant-based lifestyle. You just don't love meat or you avoid meat altogether for your own personal reasons. Either way, that at the end of the day, you'd love to be keto, but you don't really know how because so many of the foods that you enjoy just aren't and they don't lean toward the ketogenic lifestyle. So I guess what I would say to you guys is you're in great company. (laughs) We're all out here. We're like, yeah, you know what? In theory, it'd be amazing for my body to live off of its own fat. I mean, who wouldn't love that? And at the same time, by about two o'clock every day, I've blown your 50 gram of carb limit out the window probably twice. (laughs) You know what, guys? 
I'm okay with that. If keto's working for you, that's amazing. I'm actually a little bit jealous, but the very best thing you can do for you is to eat, pay attention, repeat. So where do I weigh in then on keto versus primal or paleo? Now the paleo diet in a nutshell is generally one, and this is a growth oversimplification, okay, but generally one that avoids sugars, starches, grains, and dairy. Okay, so it's very, very plant-based, meat-based, you know, ancestral eating. If it didn't exist 200 years ago or a thousand years ago, we're not eating it, right? And of course, there's a spectrum for paleo, just like there is for anything else. And you have your diehards and then you have your more lenience. Now, I very much enjoy recipes from the paleo world because they tend to be very, very simple. And I enjoy the whole foods-based aspect of the paleo diet. But again, it's not a flag that I wave. It's not a flag that I carry. It's not a team that I'm on and it's not a club that I have joined. Why? Because I eat cheese. Because I might eat a grain every once in a while. You know why? Grains don't really bother me. I stay away from gluten because it just doesn't make me feel amazing. And, And truthfully, I don't love bread. Like I'm just a freak who doesn't love bread. But do I avoid every grain at all costs because I'm wearing a paleo t-shirt? No not even a little bit. What works for me is to stick to real food 90% of the time. When I stick to real food 90% of the time, and I allow myself 10% grace, and again, note, that's a made up number. It's sort of a general barometer that I carry around with me and I follow intuitively. It's not something that I record or track or have an app to deduce. Okay, It's none of those things. Generally sticking to a whole food based diet that leans away from starches, even natural starches, because I just do better when I don't pound the starches. And personally, I do better when I don't pound the fruits, when I limit myself to maybe three servings of fruit. I would say one or two servings of fruit, but my servings are way bigger than what a real serving is. So really, it's up to maybe three servings of fruit, just because it's a pretty significant fructose intake. So here's what I do in a nutshell. I don't shy away from fat. I'm a big fan of healthy fats. I don't consume fats at the absolute cost of carbohydrates. I simply don't combine the two in the same meal whenever I can avoid it. So if I'm going high fat and more protein in a meal, I'm generally going to stay away from the starches in that meal. I might enjoy starches later, but they're normally plant-based. They're normally not super starchy grains, and they're also sometimes a chocolate chip cookie or a glass of wine. (laughs) Okay? 90 10. I live a real life. I don't carry a flag and I don't track anything except the things that make me happy. So no, I am not plant-based keto. I am kind of jealous of the people that are and maybe I will move more in that direction as I change and as seasons change. But right now, I'm just trying to figure out the foods that work for me and make me feel good. And I pay attention every day. Some days are better than others. All right. I hope that sheds a little bit of light. I also had some more food related questions around fasting, intermittent fasting, and the results that I got and whether I would recommend it and what I learned. I'm going to reserve those questions for an episode that I'm going to do specific to that topic. It's actually about fasting, intermittent fasting, and whether or not it does or can trigger 
bad behaviors, binge eating, or disordered relationships with food. So that's an episode that I'm working on for you. So I'm going to leave those questions to that episode. Okay, Carol? So stick around for that. Let's talk about MLK Chicago's question. She asked about the sun and natural vitamin D versus the argument for sunscreen and against skin cancer. Not that anyone's arguing for skin cancer, but you know what I mean. The whole sunscreen, skin cancer, vitamin D, natural sun exposure, that whole argument. All right. Now, MLK Chicago, I am really passionate about this topic. So much so that I did an episode where I talked to Dr. Wiggy about this very question. So that's episode 078. So I want you to start with episode 78. And I did a Q&A and included Dr. Wiggy's response to your exact question. And I just will say this. I am still on the hunt for a naturally based sunscreen that I love. I still haven't found one, not going to lie. And so if you have a natural based sunscreen that you are digging, please share it with me because the short version of this topic, which I'm not going to repeat here because we covered it thoroughly in episode 78, I'll just share a spoiler alert with you. The mass marketed sunscreen is trash for your body. It is trash for your children. It is arguably doing more harm than good. And I just would beg you, beg you, beg you, beg you, at least most of the time to look for alternate sources. Because listen, there's that whole like 90-10 argument again. 10% of the time, I am slapping whatever I can find on me and on my child. But by no means, by no means is that my norm, okay? I just want to keep it real and tell you that if you searched my entire house, you would find a bottle of the nasty chemical stuff too. I also probably have an arsenal of like four or five natural sunscreen brands that are mineral-based and zinc-based, and I still have not landed on one that I'm in love with. So I welcome anyone who wants to recommend a brand. Please leave a note in the comments, anywhere that you can comment, social media, on the website. You know how to reach me, and let me know if you're in love with a brand, okay? Because I'm always willing to share somebody who's doing this right, to share a product with you from somebody who's doing this right. And who knows, if we find one that we love, I'll share it in the good, the bad, and the yummy episode. All right, MLK Chicago, if you want more information about the sun versus skin cancer argument, please go listen to episode 78. All right, you guys, I don't know if you've been following the news or the provocative headlines that you see in Facebook and elsewhere about coconut oil, and and they go something like this. Coconut oil was never good for you, and it's still not good for you. Coconut oil will kill you. Don't believe the health gurus, you know, that sort of thing. So Midwife Nutritionist, that's her Instagram handle, Midwife Nutritionist. She's from Spain. Hello there, lady. She asks about these recent headlines and this research that's come out and is saying, you know, where, where do you fall down on the coconut oil? Oil argument. Well, midwife nutritionists and the rest of you who agreed with her in asking this question, my response to this media hype is a big fat eye roll, okay? Because here's what happened. The American Heart Association came out and said, coconut oil is dangerous. It's never been good for you. You know, anybody who says it is, is lying. All right. And let me just share with you, rather than speak to this myself and just share yet another opinion over the interwebs, let me just share a couple of people who actually do the research. I'll share what they've said about it, and then I'll give you my summary. Okay. So Dave Asprey of Bulletproof Coffee fame said, it's hard to even know where to begin. The American Heart Association is now saying you should use vegetable oil instead of coconut oil because, you know, saturated fat and cholesterol. By the way, there's no cholesterol in coconut oil, but 
Anyway, it boggles the mind, this is Dave again, it boggles the mind how an organization making its living off of heart disease can ignore the role of inflammation and still focus on cholesterol. Cholesterol without inflammation does not do the same thing. We know this. It is not new. We also know that vegetable oil is highly inflammatory and linked to cancer. It's liberating to realize your body is a system that interacts with everything in your environment, and the part of your body that reads the environment is your mitochondria. When you have that perspective, you don't make recommendations that harm your mitochondria. When they're dysfunctional, you can expect heart disease and cancer. The available data show that you should eat some coconut oil, but maybe not eat masses of it. But vegetable oil, if you want to live a long time, avoid that stuff. It's not food, and the American Heart Association should know that by now. Let me share one more take with you. Dr. Mercola says, despite more than 1,700 medical studies being performed on coconut oil, it continues to be vilified mainly because 90% of its fat content is saturated fat. However, saturated fats, and most particularly coconut oil, are a vital part of the human diet. For decades, we've labored under the false belief that saturated fat is a leading cause of heart disease. Research suggests that there is no significant evidence demonstrating that saturated fat clogs your arteries or puts you at risk for a heart attack or or stroke. Guys, this is not what we heard 20 years ago, and this is not accepted by every person in the medical field, but this is where the facts are falling now, and there's a whole story of misinformation behind this misconception that saturated fat clogs your arteries and puts you at risk for heart attack or stroke. This is being established as untrue and unfactual. This is a big, big, big paradigm shift for those of us who grew up thinking that saturated fat will kill you. Okay? So he goes on. In fact, particular types of saturated fat, including coconut oil, are necessary for optimal health. If you have bought into the media hype that saturated fats are unhealthy and will raise your risk of heart disease, please reconsider your position. If you've been avoiding coconut oil, you'll find that it has many beneficial properties that make it a worthwhile addition to your diet. Certainly, if you've stayed away from coconut oil because you've been misled to believe that it's fattening, you deserve to know the truth, that it can actually help you lose weight and not gain it. Having said that, if you're allergic to coconut oil or you simply don't like the taste, then it's best not to use it. Okay, great. So here's the thing. The one thing that he says that bugs me here is if you've bought into the media hype that saturated fats are unhealthy, blah, 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 blah. Well, that's not entirely fair because it wasn't just media hype. It was our doctors. It was the American Heart Association. It still is the American Heart Association. At the end of the day, without getting into a big political debate here, the answer is to do a bit of research and to follow the money. So many people will tell you that the American Heart Association, the FDA, that a lot of these entities are motivated by the wrong reasons to put out information that is not necessarily in alignment with what the people who study these things are actually saying. Do a little bit of reading or hell, just go to the show notes. I'll link to a little bit of reading, all right, and make your own decision. At the end of the day, this is more a story of competing headlines. The media loves nothing more than to scare the crap out of you with an amazingly inflammatory headline to attract your attention no matter what the topic. One year coconut oil is amazing for you, the next year it will kill you. Literally, we've been through this argument in the media cycle four times in recent history. I could stand on a debate stage and argue both sides of this argument, and I could win. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, everybody has facts to support their case. I actually draw back from this. I zoom out a little bit and just apply a little bit of common sense. I look at regions where coconut oil is prolific, readily available, grows in that region, easy to access. And I look at those populations and I compare them to the populations where consuming vegetable oils and refined oils, processed oils, bleached oils, things like canola oil, also known as rapeseed oil, and all of these horribly processed oils are the norm. And compare the health in aggregate of those two populations and let me know which side you would come down on. For me, coconut oil is staying firmly in my pantry and I will neither avoid it nor will I start freebasing it by the tablespoon thinking that it's going to cure all that ails me. The coconut oil, it's a keeper for me. Okay, let me throw a quickie in here. One of you asked me about pea protein. Is that a great alternative to whey protein? Is it something that I consume, etc.? Pea protein, yes, I'm a big fan actually. Pea protein and hemp protein are both plant-based proteins that have a very nice amino acid profile and they are wonderful alternatives to whey protein. However, pea protein is smoother than hemp protein. It's not as gnarly as hemp protein is sometimes accused of being. And in fact, it is a main ingredient in some of the protein bars that I like, including the Jerf bar, which I'll actually tell you more about in just a moment. So pea protein, yes, I'm a fan. And by the way, even if whey protein doesn't bother you and you've got a good quality whey protein, if you're into protein shakes or whatever floats your boat, even if you do enjoy whey protein and it doesn't make you bloat up, then it's still good to alternate. It's still a good idea to not just, again, like hit that whey protein super hard every day of your life, but rather to vary it up and to rotate it with a pea protein or a plant-based protein. So yes, I'm a fan of the pea protein. Not all hemp proteins are nasty, just some of them can be. That leads me to a fun question by Longtime Loser in Instagram, and I'm pretty sure her Instagram handle refers to weight loss, Longtime Loser. <laughs> I'm going to roll with that. She says, what's my favorite protein bar? I think she's asking me this because I have tried every single protein bar that's ever been manufactured by man. If mankind has made a protein bar, I have tried it. And I have several things to say about this category. Firstly, most protein bars are complete and total junk. They are sugar bars. <laughs> they are candy bars in disguise. Um, there are bars in the grocery store that are called primal bars, or they use primal and paleo words, and they are more sugar than anything else. I mean, it's a total joke. Read the ingredients of your so-called protein bar. So many of the ones that I have consumed in the past and still occasionally have, they're honestly, they're just complete crap. <laughs> so they've got like soy isolates. They've got whey protein isolates. They've got ingredients you cannot pronounce and cannot spell and they are not based on whole foods. Now, anything that is in protein bar form that you can buy in a store is processed food. I mean, let's be real. But some of them are much better choices than others. Because really, at the end of the day, process just means, you know, it was processed. It went through a process. It doesn't always mean it's evil, okay? It just means it's not as natural a meal as you can consume in a day. That said, I know for a fact that I cannot keep candy bar-like protein bars in my house because I'll eat two a day. I've been known to eat three a day. It's not good. It's not healthy. I have a problem. When I land on a whole food-based protein bar, so to speak, I tend to be really, really loyal 
if I find a brand that works for me that doesn't sort of trigger, you know, it doesn't trigger me like I've just eaten something sweet and I want more of it. And it's just satiating and it's not filled with junk. There are only two really that I would recommend right now. Actually, three. I like Dale's raw protein bars for my son because he likes those. So I'll link to those. Um, but I won't go on and on about them because I don't love them. They're a little bit dense and I think they're just too nut based for me. So I actually stopped eating those, but my son digs them and really likes them as a snack. And I feel great about giving them to him. So I will share that with you. Dale's D-A-L-E. S, Dale's Protein Bars. Here are the two that I am digging right now. The first one is the Bee Raw Superfood Bar. It's raw, vegan, paleo, gluten-free, non-GMO, no refined sugar, etc., etc. It has to be kept refrigerated. That's how raw it is. It's real food. They have four flavors, everything from coconut macadamia to a super green one. They have a chocolate espresso and an almond crunch. Actually, I don't think I've tried that one. These are really good. They're really good quality and they're a little spendy. I had one. I'm sure it was in a Whole Foods, but I have no idea where I was. I think I was in California. I'm not entirely sure, to be honest with you, but I had them somewhere and then I realized I could not get them locally. So I went to the website and ordered them. They came from Hawaii. You guys, they're made in Hawaii. And I really like this company and I think that they should send me a bunch of samples because I'm telling you about how wonderful they are. But they're delicious. They're whole food based and they're minimally processed and they're delish, but they're spendy but they're amazing. So I'll link to those, the Be Raw Superfood Bar. Now, the other bar that I like is a more traditional protein bar, if you will. And as a qualifier, you have to know that I'm really, really biased. My pal, Sean Croxton, who you may know because he is amazing and he's been in the podcast game a really long time. Sean Croxton is the creator of the JERF bar. JERF is an acronym for Just Eat Real Food. And Sean and his partner created the JERF bar because they wanted a real food bar to exist. And this bar has 13 grams of plant-based protein. I think it's pea protein, actually. And it is made with real live whole foods. Again, processed into a bar, but as close to whole food eating as you can get in convenient takeaway food. Now, I happen to favor their cinnamon raisin bar. They have three flavors and you can try them out for yourself. You can order them online. That's the only place to get them right now. But they have international shipping. They ship to the U.S., etc., etc. So if you want to try these, you should be able to get them no matter where you are. Okay, that's the Jerf bar. Okay, we have time for one more question. So the last question is from Marvelous Madness in Instagram. And she asked about blood work and where to get it because her regular MD doesn't test for everything that she wants to test for. Marvelous Madness, you are not alone. In fact, there were other comments in Instagram saying, yeah, I asked for this test or that test and my doctor didn't even know what I was talking about. So I actually would love to ask an expert about this, so I'll work this into a future show, but I just have a couple of comments here. First of all, you are 100% correct. The traditional medical environment, the traditional medical practitioner, you know, the person who went to medical school and put in just a boatload of years of training and developing their expertise, still did not get everything that we're now starting to learn is critically important, like nutritional education and an understanding of how gut health is health. (laughs) 
and an understanding of the correlation between our gut and our brain and our diet, et cetera, et cetera. You know, basically everything we talk about every time we have a doctor on the show. And our friends in medical school, they don't get that kind of training. So they have to seek that training outside of medical school. And so a lot of them don't and don't have it. I mean, and who can blame them? They put in like a billion years of training and they didn't get this and they're doing what they know to do. Now, this is not about bashing Western medicine, but it is to say that what you want to look for is an integrative physician or a naturopath or somebody who has gone beyond the confines of traditional Western medicine and what is taught in medical school and is open to testing and people who want to talk to you about hormones and gut health as they relate to your overall health and people who don't, frankly, just write you a prescription whenever you complain about a certain ailment, but actually want to get to the root cause. So there's lots of ways to do this. Lots and lots of ways to do this. You can order lab tests online. I will put some links in here without going on and on about this right now, but you can actually order blood tests online. You get your blood drawn locally, you send it in and people will send you results. They will work with you on how to interpret them, etc., etc. The other thing you can do is you can just search for integrative physicians. There are indexes, indices, I should say, that exist to that purpose. So honestly, it just involves a little digging on your part. I will link to some of these resources. And I just beg you to look beyond what is readily available. And frankly, I think so many of you will be surprised at the resources that exist near you. You don't have to go that far to find people who are willing to look beyond the standard. There's one more thing that I want to say about this, though. It's not just about what tests are available. That is one important point. Another important point to be made here, though, is the ranges are really different. So if I go to my doctor once a year, you know what I'm talking about, ladies. I go once a year to the same doctor, and maybe every other year she takes a blood test and it comes back, let's say, my, let's use magnesium as an example. My magnesium is very much in range according to the traditional medical charts. For someone my age or my weight or whatever they're using, I think it's honestly just age, my magnesium is right in range because the ranges that they're using are based on the general population. Well, have you looked around? I don't want my health determined. I don't want my health markers determined by the general population. I mean, think about that for a minute. I want my health markers determined by what is optimal not relative to an average. So what I love about integrative physicians or naturopaths or people who study this, again, who go above and beyond, is the ranges are higher or lower, I suppose, depending on the test. But again, let's just stick with magnesium here. They might say, well, your magnesium is very much in range according to sort of the traditional chart, which is relative to the average American in this case. But for optimal health, you really want to be at this range. And it's many, many points higher. That's the kind of feedback that I want. I want to know that if my magnesium's in this normal average range, you know, it's fine. I'm not setting off any alarm bells. But if I can get my magnesium to this range, which is significantly higher, I will actually enjoy, according to research, many more health benefits and I will be operating at more optimal levels. The ranges are very different between traditional medicine and what is considered 
integrative or functional medicine or naturopathic or holistic medicine. So that's just another thing to pay attention to. By the way, a lot of that information is available online. So you can get a blood test taken traditionally with your traditional doctor and you can get your results back and then you can compare those ranges, not just to what they say, but to the ranges that you can find online quite easily. So that's just another thing to keep in mind. Okay, you guys, that was a lot. We covered a lot of topics. I hope some of them were useful for you, particularly individually you. I hope you got something that you needed out of this show. Thanks for your questions. Keep them coming. And I'll do as many Q&A episodes as questions that I am asked. Keep them coming and let me know if anything I said today raises more questions for you. All right? Go have a great day. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, just go to onairwithella.com where I put up links to all of the good stuff that we talked about today and more information about our guests and all the good stuff that you did not need to write down today because I got you covered. Don't forget to join our Facebook page and thanks for those phenomenal reviews in iTunes. Every great review helps and we read every one. Thanks for listening and thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply awesome.